Now, if the rest of you would join us, please, and stand as we hear the Lord's word spoken for us today from 1 Timothy chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord for us. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do again, as always, ask for your blessing here upon us as we come to your word. Change us, transform us, shape us, mold us. Lord, we want to be responsive to your word in every way we pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 5, looking at the last half of that chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 5. When I first began reading the Bible... Uh, I, of course, appreciated what I was reading. I was in awe of what I was looking at. Uh, But I was a little thrown off um, a a bit by the Bible in the fact that the stories just seemed so random. I I appreciated every story, and I could could learn from every story. I realized that I could learn from the stories and that I could grow, and I certainly did for many years. Um, But the randomness of the stories, particularly in the Old Testament, always kind of threw me a little bit. Now, I understood that, you know, early on, I had to figure out the chronology. I understood how the stories connected in time, but I had a hard time coming up with, with how all the stories linked together, and, and that hindered, I think, a little bit of my understanding or appreciation of the Bible as a whole. I know that to be true because eventually I did come to understand a greater picture of the scriptures and how every part of the Bible, every word we read, every bit of the text is got an overall message. It is feeding into the overarching theme of the Bible, that of redemptive history, that God has determined in his grace and his mercy to save his people, and he does so through the cross of Jesus Christ. And everything in the Bible leads us, points in that direction, guides us in some way. When I realized that interacting, connecting theme, Then when I looked back at all of these stories that used to just be random, suddenly I I understood them so much clearer, so much better, because I I could draw the connections, I could make sense of how it is that this odd story of this king or of this judge or something all fed into the story of Jesus Christ. That connecting theme helped me so immensely. I don't know if when I read this passage, how much you were paying attention or looking for a connected theme. If you look in your scriptures, if you've got the ESV Bible in particular, if you look in there, this is all one paragraph. This is one paragraph. 
Now, when I saw that, I understood the editors, at least, of the Bible, think that they, all of these verses are connected in somehow. There's one theme that is being talked about here, or at least there's an interconnected purpose for all of these verses being stuck together in one paragraph. But I don't know about you, when I read this passage, as we look at it, it's really hard to see any connected theme. I kind of get the idea. Many of you know that 1 Timothy, from our study of it, if you've been a part of this or your own study at home, many of you know that 1 Timothy functions very much so kind of as a, uh, a manual of operations to some extent. Hey, this is how you should run a church. And so there's a lot of ways in here of this is how you should run a church kind of language. And it almost feels like this paragraph or, uh, you know, here's some eight different random things that Paul just thought of at the end and threw them on the, the back end of his manual of how to run a church because it's hard to see how these things are interconnected. Well, I think that they are. I think that there is a theme here, an interconnectedness in these verses that can help us, every one of us, make sense of how these verses do indeed point us towards Jesus Christ and do indeed guide us in the way in which we live our everyday life. Let's see if we can explore that together as I walk through these verses, see if you can come up with a connected theme before you get to my idea of the connected theme. In verse 17, this text begins, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Let the elders who rule well of course, there's an implication there that elders cannot rule well, and I think that uh, we have all experienced that to some extent. If you've been with us, you know that this is the elders here that are being spoken of. These are not old people, uh, those who are elderly or anything like that, necessarily at least. Uh, but what's in mind here are church leaders. Let the church leaders who rule well be worthy of double honor. Then Paul goes on to say specifically those who are in preaching and teaching. And so, yes, indeed, this verse is usually understood, and I think appropriately so, as speaking primarily to the pastor or somebody that preaches along the line. So this is, text is pretty much oriented towards me. Let those, let me, if I am ruling well here, preaching, teaching well, let me be worthy of a double honor. Now, what's the double honor here that is spoken of? Uh, and uh, one way, very clearly, and First Timothy uses this word when it uses honor, when it speaks of the remuneration, the, the funding, the salary of the pastor. What is the salary of the pastor supposed to be like? And is the pastor supposed to get a salary? Well, I hope that our church has taken this text into account when it goes about making a budget and when it thinks about paying me. And surely, most of you will probably realize that uh, my salary comes from the church. And I hope that this text itself has guided this church through the years in paying their pastors. That's part of what is implied here. Now, it's a double honor. Now, does that mean that the pastor should re receive a double salary? No. <laughs> Uh, you know, no, I, I don't necessarily think so. That's not particularly text. This is interesting. Most commentators kind of try to figure out what's Paul saying. I don't think what he's saying is that the pastor should get a double of salary than most of the average in the congregation or something along those lines. The double honor here probably references the fact that the word honor, timon, in, uh, he, in Greek, really does carry two different ideas. One is the financial aspects 
uh, whenever, the, uh, whenever the word sa- says honor the widows, for instance, uh, earlier in this very chapter, the idea is not just to show respect to them, but actually to compensate, to help them financially, etc. And so p- half of the honor, or one of the honors that a pastor is due, is the honor of financial, uh, uh, financial support, etc. But the other honor, the other way in which the word is used, is this idea of respect, or care, or provision, or nurture, or something along those lines. And so I think what Paul is saying here is if your pastor is doing well, make sure that he is financially stable, and that's half of the honor. Then the other honor is make sure that he is well-respected and cared for and nurtured and those kind of things. Now, why so? Verse 18, then, gives the reason for this. This is the cause or the, the ground of the statement that a pastor is, should have double honor. For the scripture says, you shall not mu- muzzle an ox while it's treading his grain. Well, I have to tell you that um, I'm not exactly flattered about being compared to an ox. Um, <laughs> but I also have to say that I have been compared to other animals, and an ox isn't that bad compared to some of the other associations that occasionally are made. Uh, so an ox is, you're not supposed to muzzle an ox while it's treading its grain. Now, Paul clearly likes this, this passage because he quotes it twice. He also quotes it in Corinthians, uh, basically for the same purpose. And it's worth going back, actually, if you have some time at some point, look back in Deuteronomy 25, because the hope would be that there would be some context to this passage. Uh, you know, when we talk about an ox, not, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain for all of us non-farmers out there. Uh, we might want a little context. What does that have to do with anything that Paul's so caught up by this that he uh, identifies it? uh, And if you look, you'll be very disturbed (laughs) uh, because it just, the verse just pops out of nowhere. You know, oh, by the way, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. Well, okay. Now, I don't think that, that the author of Deuteronomy is Moses and God through that really had the ox in mind. As a matter of fact, we kind of know that because Paul says in, in Corinthians, when he quotes this passage, he says, you know, hey, God's not talking about oxen here. He's talking about his care for his people and those kind of things. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. In other words, while the, while the oxen is, is working the grain, the oxen trample over the grain in order to break it up so you can separate the wheat from the chaff and stuff like that, and, and the farming of it is, is all beyond me, but the oxen are important for that kind of a purpose, and the idea is don't muzzle, don't keep the ox from eating. The ox should be able to eat while he is doing the job. Ergo, the pastor should be able to eat, should be able to keep his family intact, et cetera, et cetera, while he is working the field. That's the idea here behind the oxen is not supposed to be muzzled while he works out his, his job. So this is verses 17 and 18 talk then about um, the financial compensation and the double honor that is due to a pastor. Well, let's take a look then moving on, verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if you're familiar with the biblical text, you'll know that this is the standard way in which the scripture wants things to happen legally. Okay, this is a l- part of the legal system of Israel. It's part of the legal system of, uh, of the Israelite nation that when uh, a charge is brought against somebody, in order to reduce the idea of slander and the concept of gossip, et cetera, that legally you have to have two or three witnesses. And we know this is, still applies even in the New Testament because Jesus was, 
was accused uh, of this very standard of making sure that there were two or three witnesses that would support his claims. And then, of course, when it came to his own trial um, before the Jewish leaders, they were working on finding two or three witnesses that would support this. So the idea behind this text is clearly don't talk maliciously about somebody, an elder in the church worship or in, in the church service, unless there is evidence, there's good evidence against the person. Okay, now, I don't know the history completely of Hebron Church, but my guess is that there's not a whole lot of opportunity for you to apply this text. I mean, how often are we going to go around and accuse legally one of the elders here at the church, either the pastor or somebody else? Um, so if you ever go about it, make sure you have two or three witnesses so that we follow this text. Uh, okay, um, again, my guess is that you're not going to run into that situation very often. So how do we understand this passage? Well, I think it's not that hard to translate from the legal requirements about not slandering and gossiping against somebody unless you have two or three witnesses to something that is much more popular in our church and in every church and in every gathering of people as general, which is generic slander and gossip. And I think it's not hard to take this passage and correct ourselves, hold ourselves to that higher standard to say, hey, look, I'm not going to talk about somebody. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to share that rumor. I'm not going to say these things about this person. Because why? Because that's not the way you engage and treat one another in all godliness. And remember, that's the overarching theme of this chapter. How do we measure, how do we evaluate our godliness? Well, part of it, if we understand this text the way that I'm suggesting, is simply this. How guarded are we when it comes to the way in which we talk about our fellow believers? How careful are we? But it moves on then in verse 20. And those who persist in sin... Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. And those who persist in sin. I like the word that's persist in sin here uh, because the, the, the word in the Greek is, is a present participle, which doesn't mean anything. Um, but it, it's, it, the idea is that it's an ongoing issue. It's something that is consistent and persistent and, and it's not stopping and there's this problem with it. It's not that somebody slipped and fallen off the bandwagon or whatever. It's that somebody is consistently slipping in their sin, in their hearts before God. How do you handle such a situation? Well, I like the imagery here because you can't know of the persistence and the consistency of sin without being incredibly gracious and forgiving to somebody. For me to sin once against you demands for you to be gracious and forgiving of me. And then the second time, and then the third time, and the fourth time, when does it become a persistent sin that I have against you? Well, it can turn into that. But long before it turns into that is this great opportunity that you have to exercise forgiveness and grace in our lives towards one another. That's kind of, I think, what underlies this text. Yes, there is a point where we call that sin out and where we might even need to do it publicly 
but long before that is this exercise of grace and mercy. And what's the point of calling it out? So that others may stand in fear. Now, if you're an elder of the church here, you might sit and think, ye gads, what have I got myself into? Because it's inviting somebody to have a public condemnation of your sin in front of everybody so that you all may stand in fear. Now, I think the word means a little bit what we take it to mean, so that we are scared straight. I mean, the idea is, man, I don't want that to happen to me, so I'm going to watch carefully my life. I think that's part of it. But if you've studied the scriptures well, you know that when the Bible talks about fear, it's not always talking about being scared. As a matter of fact, that's not usually the idea. The point here is not call somebody out publicly so everyone else will be terrified of the way they live their lives. That's not the point. The idea here is call people out so that we might live in fear. And the fear here is the awe of the Lord so that others may stand aware of God's righteousness and presence. And this is the idea then of of the gathering here that we know and we acknowledge that sin is sin. Now this verse has to be taken in context of the other passages in scripture that talk about how we handle sin, that we go to our brother in private, one-on-one, or we take a friend with us and we urge them and we nurture them. And the whole point of it is to try to build them up in such a way that God's grace and mercy will work in their lives. The point of this verse is not, boy, you can't wait to have a public shaming of somebody. That's not the point. But this verse does work in tandem with those other passages that say we have to acknowledge the presence of sin. Yes, even in an elder's life, even in those who lead in the church. Look down at verse 22. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, but keep yourselves pure. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, the laying on of hands is the idea of commissioning somebody, uh, ordaining them, sending them forth into a particular ministry. And what Paul is urging here is, hey, be do not be hasty. The idea is almost uh, don't be negligent. Don't be, don't be uh, uh, flippant in the way in which you judge, the way in which you discern, the way in which you interact with other people. But, but use discernment. Use wisdom in the way in which you care for other people. The whole point of verse 22 here is to make this idea that as we interact with each other, we do so trusting in the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit to lead us into healthy relationships. Now, what do all these verses have to do with each other? We're talking about how we pay pastors. We're talking about not slandering each other. We're talking about not gossiping. We're talking about the, treating each other fairly and interacting in the fairly. What's the connecting theme here? Well, you might notice that I skipped verse 21. And I think, indeed, the verse 21 provides us that theme a little bit in this. If you have it in front of you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In the presence of God. Now, at first read, that could just seem like something like saying, hey, God's looking over your shoulder, 
Therefore, you have to be careful about the way you interact or be, be wise about all these things because God is present. But this is not a statement about God's omnipotence or omnipresence. We know God is everywhere. We know God is, and so you're always in the presence of God. But Paul is not reminding Timothy of that. Paul is reminding Timothy of what happens when we are in the presence of God. When we are in the presence, and this is why the idea of God's presence and God's indwelling in each one of you and the fact that we gather together and worship is so important because here we find ourselves in the presence of God. And that just doesn't mean that God's here. He's everywhere. What we're talking about here is that transforming work of being in the presence of God. When God's people find themselves in God's presence, they are shaped and molded by God himself. What Paul is saying is he's saying to Timothy, hey, God is here. You are interacting. You are standing before the Lord and maker of this universe, and in doing so, he is shaping your life. Why are you not supposed to prejudge? Why are you supposed not to show partiality? Why are you not supposed to show favoritism? Not because it affects us wrongly, it does, but because you're standing in the presence of God. The Lord himself is shaping every part of your life in these characteristics, and what do we know about the Lord himself? He is the God of justice. And so God's people need to be a people of justice. And so we need to do things right. We need to treat our pastors rightly, why? Because God is a God of justice. We need to interact with each other, treat each other fairly in the ways in which we talk about each other. Why? Because you're standing in the presence of God and he is shaping and he is molding you. Our God is a God of justice and therefore his people need to be a people of justice. And it's hard because we don't always see that. Thus we have verses 23 and 24 and 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Uh, sins of some people are manifest. They're right out front. You can't miss them. They're right in front of you. But, but this, uh, going before them into judgment. But the sins of others appear later. Good works are conspicuous. But some also appear later. Okay, so that's kind of verses 23 and 24. Whoops, what did I say there? Uh, 24 and 25. What's the point of those verses? It touches on something that we know all the time. Sometimes sin shows itself and you just can't avoid it. You see it. It's so blatant and, you, and the correction of it is so immediate because it's so in front of your face. But sometimes... Judgment just doesn't seem to come. Judgment seems to be so far off. Justice seems to be hard to lay our hands upon them. And it would be easy to say, why should I pursue justice so well? My God doesn't seem to take it very seriously because there's so much injustice in this world that God's not doing something about one of the commentators I read says of these verses, there's four different people being spoken of here. 
One, those people whose sins are really evident and they're right out in front of you, you can always see them. Two, sometimes people whose sin will catch up with them eventually. Three, people whose good works are right out in front and everybody sees them for good works. And four, those people whose good works sometimes never go acknowledged, but sooner or later it will happen. And I read those verses and I see, that's me? That's me? That's me? That's me! These four verses don't talk about, these verses don't talk about four different people. They talk about me. They talk about you. Sometimes your sin is right out front where everybody's going to see it. Sometimes it's hidden. But judgment is coming, has come, in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate so powerfully here. Your good work sometimes are right out front. Everybody can see it. Sometimes they're just not. But our Lord, to whom we stand in the presence of each and every day, sees each and every one. We worship a God of grace, and therefore we must be people of grace. We worship a God of love, and therefore we must be a people of love. We worship a God of justice, and therefore we must be a people of justice. Why do we treat each other rightly? Because our God is a God of justice. Why do we avoid slander and immorality and injustice and favoritism and prejudice? Because we have a God who is a God of justice. And he calls us, we model ourselves on him. And I encourage you to do so. Let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful for the provision that you give to us in Jesus Christ. That he is our Lord and our Savior, that he is the model for all that we do, that he explains the centrality of the scriptures, laying it before us, so that we can always and forever follow after your love, your grace, your justice in our own lives. Lord, help us to be men and women who are faithful in the ways in which we interact with each other. That's, Lord, uh, a great desire of my heart that I would treat each other here without favoritism with the kind of justice and the love and the grace and the mercy that you have treated me. Lord, as we stand in your presence, change, transform, and mold us. Now and forevermore, we pray in Jesus' name.